0: Father, we admit that our hearts and minds may be darkened, and they need to be illumined, they need to be opened, and so we need your spirit to supernaturally work within us, to give us an understanding, a clear sense of your word, and then to show us individually and corporately how and where and what we need to apply regarding it. And So we do depend upon you. This is part of worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And friends, one more time, if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we approach the very throne of grace with a time of reading of his word. This morning, the scripture upon which our teaching is based comes out of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas... Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, given by the triune God of love, because he loves us. You may be seated. Well, I know the Super Bowl is tonight, but something's on after the Super Bowl. How many of you, let me ask this question. Fans of this are us, this is us out there. Anybody? You're kidding me. More people in first service watch this is us. Jamie, it's you and I. Again, nobody else, this illustration is going to fall flat on its. Okay, Laura's over there. I was really getting nervous for a second because I'm like, I have an entire illustration. It's going to fall flat. So, you know, I'm never sure what to do. That. Bear with me because I'm not throwing out the sermon and this is the opening illustration for the sermon. Let me go back and tell you a little about. Maybe you'll want to sh- see the show, This Is Us, after I give this little plug. It's, I mean, it's a big deal. It's on after the Super Bowl. At least DVR it. The show is about a family, the Pearson family. Okay, Jack and Rebecca, they're the parents. They have three kids. Kevin, they're all twins. Uh, well, two twins and an adopted. Uh, Kevin, Kate, and Randall. And it's the story of their family. Now, okay, 98% of you haven't seen it, so spoiler alert, if you had seen it, this was on in season one, and I wouldn't be spoiling it for anyone, but Jack, the family patriarch, we see, because the show's done through a series of flashbacks, very creatively done, and Jack, the family patriarch, main character of the story, dies. And what you have is all of these different clues, how it happened, when it happened. Okay, for the three people who watched it, did you get rid of your crockpots? Anybody get rid of their crockpots after? He dies in a fire, and it's by the crockpot having a short. So inside, you know, for those of you. But the bottom line, because tonight's the big episode, they're basically saying after whoever you're rooting for, the Eagles win or the Patriots win, you've got to have your box of tissue out because this is tonight the culmination of everything that has been leading up to tonight's the night Jack dies. And so they've been leading up to it. Now you're sitting here going, okay, not only did that illustration fall flat on its face, but what in the world does that have to do with the Gospel of Mark? I'm glad you asked, because that's exactly what I'm going to tell you right now. We have said, and we've seen, we've structured our entire study of the Gospel of Mark this way, that the Gospel is divided into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 8, is all about the question, who is Jesus? The gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1 begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is this Son of God? And so we see him healing lepers, feeding 5,000, calming a storm, choosing his disciples. We see all these things are about who he is. And then chapters 9 through 16 basically says, what does this Son of God come to do? What is his agenda? What is his mission? What did he come to accomplish? And we learn that he came to be a servant. And a servant, a very unique, particular way to give his life. His life as a ransom for many. In other words, he came to die. And we're told, Jesus three times predicts his death. So like this is us, and this is just an illustration. It's not like it in any other way. But we're told what the culmination, what the climax of the gospel is all about. Where everything is leading And then we're given hints, and we're given clues, and the plot thickens, and the drama intensifies, moving up to that moment, that climactic moment of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we're seeing is we're going through chapters 9 through 16, and we're in chapter 14 now. And we'll be doing this up until Easter, where Easter Sunday we'll be looking at Mark chapter 16. The drama is intensifying. The plot is thickening. And this passage in particular shows us the nature of our heart and the nature of faith. And it shows us two things where the plot is thickening, the drama is intensifying, but two things about understanding your heart. It shows us first that a dark treachery lives in each of our hearts. And second, that can lead to being surprised by unexpected, scandalous grace. Dark treachery and surprising grace. This passage is another example. I've said this many, many times as we've been going through this of a literary technique that commentators point out that Mark is fond of using. It's called a sandwich technique. Sandwich technique, where, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, you've got first the pri- chief priests and the scribes looking for a way to arrest Jesus, to kill him. They're looking for him by stealth because they don't want to cause an uproar, a riot around the time of the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Inserted, and I call this the meat and cheese of the sandwich, so to speak, followed by Mark inserting a story about a woman, a woman he doesn't name, who anoints Jesus with very costly, very expensive ointment. And Jesus says what she's doing is very significant. She's anointing his body for burial. Followed by then verses 10 and 11, once again, the dark treachery of the plan of Judas conspiring to betray Jesus. Commentators remind us that it's the middle story that is key to interpreting the text. The middle story of the sandwich provides the key for understanding the whole. It's the middle story, the devotion of the woman, this exuberant, affectionate love. Where others are seeking to destroy him, conspiring to kill him, it shows forth a contrast between this woman, an unnamed outsider, and the self-obsessed, narcissistic, dark treasury. The fact that she's a woman, the fact that she's an outsider, only serves to enhance the contrast that's being given here. In fact, the costliness of her gift. The fact that the text even tells us it's 300 denarii, which would have been about a year's worth of wages for an average worker. It's costing her much to herself, which is the fruit of the faith. So let's look at the outside portions, first of all, of the sandwich, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 10 and 11. First of all, verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, let's first of all kind of pull back a little bit, look at some context. Where are we in the overall narrative, the overall direction of the story? Mark 14 begins a new stage of Jesus' final week. The Olivet Discourse is completed. The challenges to Jesus' teaching and authority, if you remember back as we looked through chapters 11 and 12 of the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees coming, they were all trying to discredit Jesus, trying to embarrass Jesus. All of these challenges have been met. And now we're in the time of the final series of events, in Jesus' final week, that will culminate in his crucifixion and three days later, his resurrection. An event that Jesus has predicted three times already. So you can see the entire arc of the narrative is moving in this direction. One commentator put it this way. He says, if storm clouds are gathering over Jerusalem in chapter 13, in chapter 14, they are coming together over the head of Jesus. The parallel between the two... Is extremely important because the fate Jesus has predicted for the temple which is its destruction at the hands of pagan enemies is precisely what will now happen to him and understanding this connection understanding this parallel is extremely important between the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jesus so for example in the Gospel of John you have in the early chapters of the Gospel of John Jesus cleansing the temple. And he's answering charges put to him by the Jewish authorities. So in verse 18 of chapter 2, it says, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And then Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And Jews, of course, are perplexed by this. They say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? John inserts verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The fate of the temple, destruction, And the fate of him, destruction on the cross, are the same. Destroy this temple will happen to both the physical temple in A.D. 70. It will be destroyed, and to Jesus on the cross. One difference. Jesus says his temple, his body, will be raised up in three days. Certainly not what anyone saw coming. And that refers to the temple of his own body, and that has two references His body, of course, has two references. One is obviously his own very physical body that will be raised from the dead. But the second is is his body, the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ, the church, who we are, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the very temple of God. A temple will be raised up. A new people will be born. A reimagined, reformed Israel. Born anew of every tribe, every tongue, every culture, every people, every nature. And so from this point forward, Mark's narrative, Mark's story, is entirely focused on the coming crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And where we are now in the final week of Jesus is it's two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover, which was the great pilgrimage and festival commemorating Israel's exodus, their liberation from Egypt, from the land and condition of slavery. As one commentator put it, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which commemorated the hasty departure of the Israelites from Egypt when there was no time to show, for the, to show the dough to rise. He calls this Passover freedom time, that our redemption, our liberation, our freedom is won at the cost of the death of the firstborn. And the setting... That Jesus is choosing for the final conflict between the freedom movement he had been spearheading and the new pharaohs, the forces both of pagan rule and of temple misrule, is at the time of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so in verses 1 and 2, when Mark is setting the context, telling us where we are, and here you have the chief priests and the scribes conspiring... The back half of the sandwich, look with me at verses 10 and 11, show how it will take place. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Here's Judas plotting to betray Jesus. He enters into collusion with the chief priests, seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. The text ends with this kind of dark and foreboding. Judas seeking opportunity, watching carefully, looking closely. Ironically, think about the Olivet Discourse for a second and the purpose of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is giving an exhortation. What is he continually telling the disciples? Stay awake. Stay alert. Take heed. Be on your guard. And yet, here's the irony. Here's Judas. What is he doing? He's staying awake. He's being alert. He's taking heed. He's on his guard to do the dark treachery of turning Jesus in, of betraying him. I want you to think about something for a minute as we try to apply this to our own lives. I want you to think about something here. This betrayal, this dark treachery, where does it come from? It comes from Jesus' inner circle. Judas was one of the twelve, an intimate part of Jesus' inner circle. Judas was there when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Judas was there when the four friends lowered the man, the paralytic, through the roof. Judas was there when Jesus said, cease, be still to the storm. Judas was there when Jesus fed the 5,000 or cleansed and healed the leper. Judas was there and did life, walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, did life with Jesus for the last three years, and yet, do you understand your own heart? Intimately, do you know that you're capable of the same dark treachery, that the dark treachery that was in Judas lives within you and lives within me? one of the things we need to recognize this is application is that proximity to jesus does not guarantee real personal authentic faith in jesus it's a kind of a scary thing you can be very close to jesus attending church for 40 50 years all your life attending church being a part of things coming to the activities you can be doing all of these things very close to jesus like judas was and not have a real personal regenerate authentic faith in jesus Do you understand your own heart? Because then there's surprising grace. The heart of the narrative is verses 3 through 9. The real point of the narrative is the meat and cheese in the middle of the sandwich. Look with me at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them." but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. All right, now the context of this, Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. It's on the east side of the Mount of Olives. It's probably, more than likely, kind of where Jesus was keeping his home base in the final week of his life. And commentators kind of speculate about this. They're not quite sure, but they speculate if this is the same account that's found in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, then this would quite possibly be Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And they again speculate that possibly Simon the leper, here in Mark chapter 14, could be their father. One of the things commentators, and this is their insight that they point out here is the theme that Mark is highlighting, and that is the theme of insiders versus outsiders. Part of what makes grace so scandalous and so surprising is, look with me at the things that show this contrast between insiders and outsiders. Mark makes a point of saying this was Bethany. Bethany is outside the city. It's not the inner circle. It's not the inner city. It's not the city of God. Jerusalem was the city of God. This is the village of Bethany outside Jerusalem. And Simon, notice Mark makes some point of saying Simon's a leper. Do we understand who lepers were in that society? Lepers were outcast and marginalized par excellence. You didn't get further outside than a leper. And then you have, and Mark chooses to not name the woman, even if it is Mary, Mark is very purposefully not naming her. And he's choosing to do this because it's serving to enhance her status as an outsider. She's not named. She's not given enough honor. She's not given enough status. She's not given enough dignity to even confer a name upon her. Why is Mark doing these things? What's his point? The point that he's making is that it is from this place, this house, these people, This is not where you would find or expect to find such grace, such faith, such sacrifice, such generosity, and such discipleship. A witness to the glory of God is not to be expected from here and with this people. One commentator says, but it's from this most unexpected quarter that comes an act of sacrificial generosity that supersedes anything reported of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. Mark wants us to know the nature of this act. He is highlighting surprising, unexpected, scandalous grace. And why do I say it's scandalous? Look at the reaction of his inner circle. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly. Doesn't sound like they're complimenting the woman here or Jesus, right? Right? They said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. And the word scolded there means they rebuked her harshly. This was not a gentle confrontation. This was a rebuke intended to shame her. Now, we can't, certainly can't know their motives. We don't know, you know, here they are bringing up the poor. We don't know if they're being genuine or just given a smokescreen. But what we certainly do know is Jesus' assessment of this situation. Verse 6, Jesus says directly, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. So he's not saying... How you treat the poor doesn't matter. He's saying, you have every opportunity in the world to continually do good. But he's saying, look right now. You won't always have me. The bridegroom won't always be present with the bride. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand. One commentator points out, he says, what they fail to do, and perhaps even to understand, an unnamed woman understands and does anticipating the violent death of one numbered with the transgressors according to Isaiah 53 verse 12 Jesus knew that his body would be thrown to dogs or cast into a common grave he accepts the woman's anointing as a preparation for his burial sparing him the indignity of a criminal's death and of course the disciples, the inter- they're indignant at this. And again, this commentator says, the world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. It has no problem with too much wealth or power or sex or influence, but it certainly has a problem with too much religion and very much a problem with too much grace. He says, this is evident here. The unnamed woman deems Jesus worthy of her sacrifice, whereas the disciples do not. What is the fruit of grace, friends? What is the fruit of faith? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But the only thing that counts, the only thing that matters, is faith. And faith has to have an object, Jesus Christ. But true faith, living faith, with its object as Christ, will be working, will be expressing itself. And the way it expresses itself is love. What do we see in this woman? love and love is always concerned more with the person than simply doing the right thing she's concerned with jesus's status jesus's honor jesus's dignity more than the cost of this ointment this woman is concerned with who jesus is loving jesus as a person and how in the world is this possible only if you know you were loved first see we don't know if she knew all the christology in the world All atonement theory. We don't know if she could articulate very well the doctrine of justification by faith. But she did know she was preparing Jesus for death. Preparing him for burial. She had heard him. Mark records three times Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection. She did have the Old Testament prophets that says the suffering servant will be numbered with the transgressors she has had her heart touched by love and filled with love. How about you? Do you understand that the cross is a demonstration, a tangible proof of God's relentless love of you? Have you been touched by and filled with love? Do you hear what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when he says God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet Sinners, Christ died for us. She's preparing Jesus' body for burial because his burial for her meant the reality of his love for her. And she responded with love and sacrifice. Because he loved her, she wanted to show her love for him. I want to close with a story that illustrates the extravagant, Love of God for us. It's a story, and I don't want you to overreact when you hear the name, because I want you to pay attention to the story, okay? It's a story that was given by Tony Campolo. Now, I don't advocate his politics, and I don't want us to go there at all, but it's a story of the extravagant love of God. He tells the story of a trip he took to Honolulu in the mid-'80s, and because he was flying from Philadelphia to Honolulu, He was crossing many time zones, he was crossing the Pacific Ocean, he was jet-lagged, and so he found himself awake and needing breakfast at 3.30 in the morning, couldn't sleep. So he goes from the motel and he goes to a kind of a greasy dive of a diner of a place to order, you know, breakfast of champions, he says, donut and coffee. And so he's awake, and in walk eight to nine prostitutes. And he decides, or at least he says he dec- what he decides to do, the best thing is to get out of there. But as he ge- is getting ready to leave, he overhears one of them say, tomorrow is my birthday. I'll be 39. another one kind of tears in her saying, so what? What do you want me to do? Throw you a party? Bake you a cake? You want me to sing happy birthday? And so they kind of shot back at each other. Tony Campolo says he hangs back. Looks around till they leave, and then he asks the guy who runs the place if these people come in every night. Which is, the guy said, "Yes, every single night, 3:30, like clockwork, they come in here." And he suggests, he says, "What if we throw a big birthday party for her tomorrow? I'll foot the bill, I'll do everything." He says he makes all the arrangements, he decorates the diner, the chef bakes the cake, somebody gets the word out on the street. The next night, 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu shows up in the place. They come in, and 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swings open, and in comes this girl and her friend. They all scream, because Tony Campolo was emceeing, and as everybody, they scream, happy birthday. And he says, never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken, Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday. She couldn't even blow out the candles on the cake. She was so overwhelmed, she asked if she could just keep the cake for a little while. The crowd was stunned into silence. Not knowing what else to do, Campolo said, well, what do you say we pray? And he prays, he prays for their salvation, for God to turn her life around. At the end, the chef turns to him with a trace of hostility in his voice and says, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? To which Campolo replied, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) This woman recognized Jesus was about to die. She's preparing, very specifically, his body for burial. Do you recognize that the book of Hosea in the Old Testament is all about God? Talk about strange commands that don't make sense. Read the book of Hosea. God commands Hosea, a prophet, to go marry Gomer, a prostitute. And the prophecy is all a story about how we, the church... Are basically prostitutes. The fact that we have all, in a sense, hoard ourselves out to other gods, exchanging the glory of the God for lesser things. Do we understand our own hearts, the dark treachery of Judas that lurks within us? And do we understand where that dark treachery can take us? See, what does Jesus do? He dies on a cross to be buried To be raised again and vindicated so that God can throw a party for prostitutes. So that God can throw a party for you. What did Zephaniah say? The Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. Grace is scandalous. If we understand the dark treachery of our hearts, do we let it drive us to grace, to unexpected grace, to surprising grace? Yes, to scandalous grace. We're about to come to the Lord's table. Do you know what the Lord's table is? It is a picture. It is a sign and a seal, real elements, real bread, real juice given to demonstrate, to be a sign and a seal of God's scandalous grace to his people. This is God's hospitality for you. Spread wide open for God throwing a party, saying, my body, my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Let us pray. Father, I pray that we would see both the dark treachery of our hearts, but we wouldn't stay there. That we would see your scandalous grace, and we would surrender to your scandalous grace. Father, it is offensive. May we be offended at the right thing. May we surrender to your grace, and may we taste of your grace now as we come to your table where you generously open wide your heart to us. In Jesus' name, amen.